Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have a Q&A. This one is jam-packed. We have Shit, we had a lot of questions, and, and, and we actually didn't even answer half of them. <laughs> so we're going to do a part two to this Q&A. Um, I'm really enjoying having a studio and being able to have Travis here with me because I'm, a, I'm able to conversate about topics and actually go more in depth and have more detail and more context into the questions. So I really only think we answered like four or five questions, but the depth and the application upon each is unbelievable. So you're going to hear a bunch about training and nutrition specifically, and then a little bit about just like coaching application and periodization of, of my own personal goals, which I, which I shared how I'm doing that, uh, going into the new year, uh, right now. So, um, guys, thank you so much for listening. First and foremost, I'm unbelievably grateful to do this podcast. Every time I get to sit down, I get fired up and it's just so much fun for me. So if you enjoy this podcast as well, please do me a huge favor. Help me grow the show by heading over to iTunes, leaving a five-star rating review, making sure you take a screenshot of the show, heading over to Instagram, post a screenshot on your story and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. I want to thank you for listening. I want to share it on my story as well. And last but not least, I want to give a big shout out to our sponsors. First one being CreaPure. It's the purest creatine on the planet. I really do not recommend anybody buying any type of creatine unless it has the CreaPure tag on it. Um, and I stand by that and I've sta- stood by that for eight years, to be honest with you. I've been taking this shit for a long time and it's really cool to be able to collaborate with them now. And then the second sponsor, of course, Top Notch Nutrition. They actually just launched a new hydrate formula and it is orange. It's, it's Mandarin, I believe. Um, really good. They sent it to me last week before it actually released. It just released on Tuesday of this week. So make sure you head over there, topnotchnutrition.com slash boom boom and enter the coupon code boom boom to save 10 to 15%. I believe it's 15% this week with this launch. So make sure you jump on that. Their hydrate formula is really cool. It's something that has a lot of good compounds and nutrients for you to fuel in the morning. So something I've done for a long time is actually drink some warm water with lemon and Himalayan salt first thing in the morning to rehydrate, stimulate my thyroid, stimulate my nervous system and get me up. Um, it actually gives me a lot of energy. Sometimes I'll drink it and then I forget to have my coffee for a little bit because it does stimulate you that much. Um, but it tastes like garbage. That was the worst part about it. Pure salt and water. I just had to chug it down. It's warm. It sucked. But the cool thing about hydrate is that's what it is. Uh, Top Notch Nutrition created that with adding BCAs and glutamine into the product. And it actually uh, able to, you're able to drink it and not want to puke because it tastes good actually tastes really good and I really enjoy drinking it. So I mix that with my greens every morning. But once again, shout out to Top Notch for sponsoring the podcast. Love those guys over there. And uh, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, another Q&A podcast. Get it. We'll get right into it. I always wonder how some people, mainly girls, are able to eat so many calories yet they stay so lean. Is it because they have a lot of muscle? Who said this one? Uh, Joanna Hernandez. Got to give them a shout out. There you go. Um... Okay, so I this question was a lot longer, and she kind of went in depth with her training and so on and so forth. But um, I think I mean it, it's a very broad question. I think we can answer it without diving into her training routine and everything. And I've actually gotten this question quite a bit, and it's funny because people always hate on those people who can just genetically stay lean. 
um, and eat a ton of calories. Like I actually remember doing this with, or, or being this way towards Theo. Like we would, we would go get food and I would order like a salad and this dude's eating chicken and waffles. Mm -hmm. Or I remember going to, do you remember Jesse Singh? No. Shout out to Jesse Singh. If you listen to this, one of my first clients ever, really, really good friend. Um, and we were going to his wedding and Theo's like, Oh, we got to stop at Krispy Kreme's. Like, wow. He's like, I'm hungry. He ate a box of donuts in the car. Jeez. On the way to Seattle. A whole box? Yeah. I think it was a half dozen, so six in a row. But just Damn. just as like a snack before we got to the wedding. <laughs> and I was just Shout like. Shout out to you. <laughs> I was like, bro, that shit drives me crazy. I'm out here working hard to get lean. Yeah. And you can just eat whatever you want. Um, so uh, the question, going back to the question of why are some people able to just eat a ton of calories? So there's a few things here. The first one being genetics. We can't change it. You just have to accept it. It's one of those things that is the most frustrating or most difficult things to accept because genetics determine so much of what results people will see. I mean, there's some athletes that are just God-given athletes. They're just freaks out there and they don't have smart training. They don't have smart diets. They're just freaks of nature. Now, obviously repetition behind sport over and over again makes those genetics astronomical, but it starts of a place of genetics and we can't change that. It's just what our parents gave us. So some people have a higher caloric ceiling, a faster metabolism because of genetics. Some people also have uh, more testosterone, better cortisol levels, so on and so forth because of genetics. Some people also have a, a difference in sympathetic and parasympathetic states of their nervous system because of genetics. So um, because of that, let's say that, like, there's a lot of people out there, <laughs> Theo's another good example of this, who um, can easily display explosive movements, but when you hang out with them, they're very chill. Like he's yeah. a very low key person. Yeah. He's very parasympathetic, yeah. meaning he's chill, everything's cool, not very high stress, whatever. Because of that parasympathetic dominance, he's constantly in a state of recovery. If you're constantly in a state of recovery, you're constantly in a state of anabolic nature. And that's the sign of muscle growth. Mm. When you are in a state of muscle growth, more often because of this, you can eat more calories because your body is taking those calories uh, more easily. It's accepting those calories and rebuilding tissue with it. Um, So to, to make that a simpler answer, these shifts in parasympathetic and sympathetic tones happen more easily in some genetically gifted people. And because of that, they can eat more calories. Whereas somebody who it's actually like me again, I'm the opposite is I'm very um, sympathetic, not parasympathetic, meaning I'm high stress, which it's like, go, go, go. My mind's constantly racing. I have to work to not get anxious about things because of that. Um, my body's not always in that parasympathetic recovery anabolic state. And I have to like really remember like, okay, slow down, let's get a massage. Let's go to bed early. Like try to calm down to keep that going. Um, doesn't help my caloric ceiling. Um, genetics obviously play a role in how much muscle tissue you have. The more muscle tissue you have, the more energy you expend on a daily basis, meaning your calories can be higher because you're just burning more calories. So there's a ton of reasons why some people are just genetically gifted. The other side of this is, uh, their, um, metabolic adaptation, but I don't mean that in a way of like most people hear metabolic adaptation. They think like, Oh shit, my metabolism is slowing down. What I'm referring to here is actually the opposite. So how adaptive is your metabolism? Um, and, and one of the things that comes with that is thermic effect of food and uh, general energy expenditure in your training. So how fast does your metabolism work when you're training? And then also your need non-exercise activity, thermogenesis. And this is the process of burning more calories. How many calories do you eat through food? How many calories do you burn through exercise and how many calories do you burn through day-to-day activity? Some people eat more food. They talk more, they move more, they fidget more, they take more steps per day, they stand up more. It's just natural. They don't even realize it. So people say, oh, you have a fast metabolism. It's like, no, they move a lot and we just don't know it. Um, So usually it's those two things. It's genetics and then the adaptive 
nature of your metabolism. And some people just have a favorable metabolism. It's just more adaptive. Um, and, and know that that doesn't always work in the benefit during a cut, for example, because if you want to get really shredded and you have adaptive metabolism, it's going to adapt to whatever you throw at it quickly. So when you cut calories, it adapts and then it's hard to lose weight. Yeah. So they have to make aggressive cuts. So that's, and that's one of those things that's kind of in the art of coaching. It's like, what kind of person is this? Yeah. Um, but those are the two biggest things. It's going to be genetics and it's going to be how adaptive is your metabolism, um, through neat, through energy expenditure in your training and through the thermic effect of food. Um, and other than that, honestly, it's, I don't think there's anything else to it because like she broke down her split. I can have somebody, me and Dio did the same training for years, same exact training. And our, our step count per day was probably the same too. Cause we had the same job. And it's like, why is he able to eat a thousand more calories than me? Genetics and his adaptive metabolism. Yeah. It's just the cards he was dealt and he got a great hand. <laughs> there's also like people that aren't active that are still staying lean that, Mm-hmm. People, you said, you know, no, it's not the fast metabolism, it's, it's the amount they move. Is there, explain that, like people that are not active, but they still yeah. have a fast, well, is it fast metabolism? Cause they're still lean. Yeah. And, and so that goes back to genetics. Cause, okay. uh, so yeah. your testosterone, your cortisol, your metabolism, um, your thyroid, all these things are hormones are part of the endocrine system. Those are determined by genetics. So some of those people like for your example, we have the same training split. I, my job is, is walking and moving and training people and you sit at a desk all day. Why are you eating more food than me and staying lean? It's genetics. Yeah. That's where the genetics take the bigger yeah. reign of it. Um, and that whole adaptive metabolism isn't necessarily the factor. Um, but it, it still can be a little bit because maybe when we're doing the same training session, you burn more calories than me. You know what I mean? And we got to think too, like this lady used women as an example. Um, I think she threw out CrossFit out there and there's a lot of like this in CrossFit, some of the women do just have a ton of muscle. And yeah. when you have more muscle, two things happen. A, you have more expensive tissue on your body. So me sitting here with more muscle mass means that my body needs more calories to sit here and survive because I have expensive tissue. Muscle mass is expensive tissue. Uh, fat tissue is not. It doesn't take much intake to support or, or sustain yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other side of that is the more muscle I have, the more explosive and harder my output is in the training session. So now when I go into the training session, I'm probably going to burn more calories too because I have more muscle mass to express strength with. Um, so it's those two things. But I, I think with those people that you brought up, I think it's mainly genetics. Gotcha. And it sucks too because people are like – one of her questions was like, how do I get to that level? Like how do I – it's like – You weren't dealt that hand. You weren't dealt that hand. <laughs> like some people, it's that case. Now, I will say too – um, and I'm saving this question for last because we might actually do a separate podcast on it just cause we have a lot of questions, but it was talking about, um, Stephanie Buttermore's all in thing. And it's basically this girl who's been on and off dieting. She's an influencer. Um, it's Jeff Nippard's girlfriend yeah. and she is super lean and she's going all in where she's basically just fucking eating as much food as she can every day for like months. And the reason for it is because she has amenorrhea. So she's like lost her period. She has some physiological damage to her body from years of dieting. And that's what she needs to do. Um, so sometimes it's like, how do I get to that point? Well, it, it's stop dieting, stop training so hard, manage your stress, eat more food and be patient for a year. And like people don't want to hear that, but, and sometimes it's not a year, maybe it's six months. Yeah. But the point is it's, it's a long time of staying at maintenance at a higher caloric set point, not worried about how lean you are, because when you do that, your body will change. But it, that change takes a long time, especially from a physiological, a hormonal standpoint. If you want to get to a point where you can consume more calories and eat more food and be that person that's eating a ton of food and staying lean and perform well, you got to spend time just eating at maintenance or eating above maintenance to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess there, it, it's not always, you're not dealt those cards. Maybe it's, 
to keep it in this analogy, you got rid of that hand too quick in the game of poker or something like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you weren't dealt a shitty hand, but you, you use those cards shitty like throughout the years. And, I, and I've done this too. Like, like I don't have horrible genetics, but the first 18 years of my life, I never trained and I ate like shit. So I gained weight and I was overweight. But after, by the time I got out of high school, I was like, man, I've been fat kid my whole life. What do I do now? I have shitty genetics. Well, my brother was always lean. My dad's always been lean and athletic. My mom's always been lean and athletic. My grandparents always lean and athletic. My cousin, I'm the only overweight one with shitty genetics in my family. So really I didn't have shitty genetics. Yeah. I had a shitty lifestyle. And this is where epigenetics come into play. And epigenetics are the role of what our environment changes our genetics to be. So your genetics might be a certain way, but if you live 10 years of your life being sedentary at a job, eating like shit, chain smoking cigarettes and not working out, it doesn't matter what your good genetics were. They're shitty now. Yeah. You've ingrained new in genetics into your life. Um, and that's why like now people look at me like, oh, you have great genetics. It's like, well, it's from a decade of changing the way I live my life. Um, so sometimes it's about trying to change your environment, you know what For I mean? Sure. Over time. So, um, I think that could like spin off into a million different answers, but I, yeah. I think that that covers it. All right. We'll move on to the next one. See if you get this one right. Carmen Spitzer. Oh, never mind. It's different. I, I was thinking the next one. <laughs> this is the next one. Things to know when training two times a day. Okay. Uh, I was thinking of the next question, the uh. name. Um, but anyway, um, okay. Things to consider when training two times a day. Um, I think it depends on a multitude of factors. So it, it depends on what are you doing in those two sessions? Cause I do, so I do two days, some, some days of the week I do two days, usually like Monday and Friday and sometimes Tuesdays. Um, and it's usually an aerobic session in the morning and then a lifting session around three thirty. So the biggest thing here is when you're doing two days, you want to separate those sessions five to six hours apart at least. Um, the reason for that is because that gives you adequate time to refuel and digest the, the meal that you've consumed and then also get blood flow in the body, actually rest and recover, bring your sympathetic nervous system down to parasynthetic, actually chill for a little bit, um, and then you can refuel before the session. So you can do a morning session, fuel, recover, fuel again, perform the next one. And you need at least five or six hours to, in order to do that whole process. Now, for some of my sessions, so like let's say like last Friday's uh, aerobic session in the morning, uh, I shifted because I was just, I told you about this, I went skateboarding. I'm still sore from skateboarding last week. Like as much as I lift when I go skateboard. Completely different movement. Dude, it just wrecks me. And I was, I literally skateboarded for like 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. It just like my right hip flexor and like my hamstring tendon by my knee are so fucking sore. That's why on Monday... I deloaded so hard on that leg day. I was like, I can't do it. Um, but on Friday, I deloaded uh, my aerobic session to an hour-long walk with a weight vest. So it was supposed to be uh, intervals of running, but my hip flexor was killing me. So I just did walking, and I extended the duration, and I wore a weight vest, and I did it while I was on call. So it's a nonstop walk for 60 minutes. I don't really need to worry about nutrient timing too much with that. It's a fucking walk. Now, I burned a lot of calories, and I was breathing hard because I had a weight vest on, but I wasn't putting my body into like a crazy sympathetic state. So I didn't worry too much. I had breaks before, uh, like normal. I did my, my walk with the weight vest. And then for an hour, I actually didn't even do anything afterwards. I waited like three more hours until I ate lunch, like normal. I just didn't change anything. Mm -hmm. Now, Monday, uh, the, the, the Monday before that, when I did a, a two a day, it was like a 400 meter run with a two minute rest, 400 meter run, two minute rest. Uh, 400 meter row, two minute rest, 400 meter row, two, two minute rest. And then I think it was a thousand meter salt bike, 
for two rounds with two minute rest. So now I'm doing six different intervals and I'm doing at a higher pace and I'm doing a mixed modality of things. It takes longer. It's a higher intensity. I was sweating. I absolutely fueled right afterwards. Yeah. So for that session, the, the meal timing strategy is I eat about for me, two hours is kind of the sweet spot pre-workout. So I eat two hours before and it's, it's a high protein, moderate carb, low fat meal right after the run or the intervals, it was just a protein shake. I, I didn't deplete so much glycogen or carbohydrates that I needed to worry about carbs. So I just fueled with some protein, just make sure I get the recovery, waited like two or three hours, had my, my lunch, which was Greek yogurt with whey protein, shout out to Top Notch Nutrition, their new clean whey protein, um, with oats and blueberries. So I have a mix of a little bit of fat, starch, fruit, casein, whey. It's like a really good pre-workout meal. Um, replenish any glycogen I need and fuel me for the workout in two hours. Had my pre-workout, worked out, and then I had a big dinner afterwards. So it's nothing crazy. So like in a situation like that, even though I'm, I'm doing a more intense two-day, it's still just protein carbs pre, just protein post, and then a couple hours later, a full meal of protein carbs. A couple hours later, I work out. Um, now, if you're a CrossFit athlete, so I have an individual who trains twice a day, and it's more like morning session is going to be um, Olympic lifting. So it's, it's, they're doing snatch work. They're doing, uh, maybe some, some snatch pulls. They're doing some deadlifting and then a short Metcon. So it's like a full workout. And then in the evening they're doing gymnastic work. So now they have a, like a 40 minute circuit of mobility and then, uh, pull-ups and muscle-ups and handstand walks and push-ups and all these things that are, it's like a full volume workout. Those are two legit workouts for sure. So for her, for one, she's eating 500 grams of carbs a day. No questions asked. Number two, and she's a small individual. Number two, she has a protein carb, low fat meal before the first workout, protein carb, low fat meal after the second workout or after the first workout. So it's like a meal right before a meal right after, um, usually the meal right after is some quick and easy digestible. So it's either like high starch, uh, lean protein, or it's like a shake with like fruit, starch and protein. Um, few hours later has her pre-workout meal for the next session. And then another immediate, easily digestible meal after that one. And then a meal right before bed. That's usually like casein, protein, carbohydrates, and fats to yeah. slow that recovery through the night. Um, so for her, it's very specific on like every pre and post-workout meal. I want a combination of carbs, uh, from starch and fruit. We can use multiple glucose transporters. Um, we're, uh, your meal before bed, I want it to be casein because I want it to be slow digestion protein with some fats and some carbs to keep you satisfied throughout the night and slow that process of recovery overnight. So it gets very, very specific with them. But I think a lot of people, I was going to say, I think a lot of people overcomplicate it, but if I really look at that, that's pretty fucking complicated meal day of eating. If you think about it. Um, and I, I think the, the, the two a day. yeah, the grand, the grand scheme of it is, is, for those type of people, you want like a low to moderate fat diet with a very high carb approach. And it's going to be like pre and post workout is always going to be lean protein, carb, a mix of starch and fruit and like a lower fat meal. And then the meal before bed, is going to be higher fat, slow digesting proteins. And like, that's going to set you up basically perfectly. Um, and the last thing I'll say is pre-workout, I tend to like low glycemic carbohydrates. The glycemic index is kind of whack. Like you don't need to follow it too much, but it does give us some categories to look at foods with, and that's going to set us up with a higher fiber, slower digestion carb, which I think is good pre-workout. If you're eating an hour and a half to three hours prior, it's going to make sure that you have that fuel going into the session because it digests slowly. And it's going to make sure that a, the fruit and the starch in general is going to give you that blood glucose response. You want to fuel ATP immediately, but then that slow release of carbohydrates from the high fiber starch is going to fuel 
training throughout the workout. Mm-hmm. Um, and the post-workout, you're having white rice, cream of rice, like something very, very starchy, um, highly branched cyclic dextrin, something that we know is going to absorb like that because we don't need to slow that down. It's like, let's just get it in right away. Um, so slow digesting pre, fast digesting post, um, and you just do that throughout the day. I think that's, that covers it. Boom. All right, this next one's a little bit of a longer question. Oh, this is the name you were talking about. I think so. Is it C underscore 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 F. Yeah, there's a lot of underscores there. Yeah. How many people had one less underscore and two less underscores? <laughs> you just got to keep on going. <laughs> I don't know if you have done this before. But yeah, I wonder l- if there's like a meaning behind that or yeah. if it was like. It's like your name. You know what I mean? Like, like somebody took it. Underscore afterwards, but he wanted C underscore F, but he had to keep on going. I, that's what I'm saying. I wonder if there was that many people or if there's like a meaning beti- behind it being that far apart. That far apart or that many underscores. I can't imagine there's that many he people with it. C <laughs> underscore underscore underscore. Uh, anyway. And I think it's a girl. Just going to throw that out there. And you got that wrong last time. So C. I apologize to you. I think it was uh, – I'm going to butcher the name. It was uh, – it wasn't J- Juna – she emailed me and she was like, I'm a girl, by the way, because you said him. Oh, God. And when I saw the email, and it was fault. funny because I was like, I was like, you didn't tell us what your injury was. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when she emailed me, I was like, oh, I recognize this email. And then I pulled up the history and we had already been talking about her injury. The email was helping her out. Ah. So I was like, oh, you thought I would like, and I was like, honestly, Travis is reading the questions now. And I like, I didn't put two and two together because I don't have my screen in front of me. Throwing me under the bus. So it was Travis's fault. <laughs> my fault. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So this question says, I don't know if you've done this before, but would love a podcast slash blog post on maintenance. I feel like it's so much harder than cutting bulking because you are trying to stay the same. Yeah. I'm in a maintenance phase right now in recovery from my cut, but also cutting down the time until my next cut because I still have some body fat to lose and I feel like the motivation is not there to stay on course. Would just love some tips or insights. Yeah, so um, really good question. I think this applies to a lot of people because this is where people get super demotivated and just give up because, I mean, she said it perfectly. You're trying to go, like, to stay still. Like, you're just trying and, like, as much as dieting quote unquote sucks because you're in a deficit, it's motivating because you're like, fuck, I'm a little hungry, but I'm getting leaner and I'm seeing results in the mirror and, and I have a photo shoot or I have a goal or I have a wedding or I have whatever it is. Um, when you're gaining, depending on who you are, it's motivating for some women that I take through lean gaining phases. It's not because they see the scale slowly tick up and it stresses them out. Whereas some guys, it's, it's the same thing. They're like, I've never been this heavy. And I'm like, okay, slow down, man. Like we don't want to like gain too much weight too quick. Um, so you kind of have to, I think like the, what I'm getting to is like anybody in the situation that has to go through a maintenance or a gaining phase, I think they have to focus on the two things, long-term and education. And something like we preach a lot, um, at our company. And it's because I, I'm in a maintenance phase right now. And this is a good example. Actually, I'm in a gaining phase. I'm trying to gain weight slowly, but it's still, it's a snail's race. Like I can't build muscle that quick. So for me, if I see I'm aiming, this is crazy. I'm aiming for 0.2 pounds per week right now. Gain. Like that's so fucking slow. If you're looking at a scale. So I was like 168.3 this morning. If I see the scale go from 168.3 to 168.5 over a week, but like every day it fluctuates so much that I have to look at averages by the end of the month, I'll gain 0.8 pounds, not even a full pound. So I'll still be in the 168. Point not, you know what I mean? So like you have to be in a different mindset because to see that and be like, I'm making progress is like very hard to extract that so progress. You're like 
trying to gain five pounds over the year or something. Exactly. It's so fucking slow. Um, and the reason for that is simple. I've been training for almost a decade. Um, I'm not going to build muscle that fast. That's, I mean, it's as simple as it is. Unless, unless I take some kind of steroid, it's just not going to happen um, because I've, I'm, I'm reaching close to my genetic ceiling. I remember when I first – so I lost 45 to 50 pounds when I first started, and I kind of ended up kind of skinny fat. And I'll never forget it was like – this was before strength camps. This was before man's formation, all that stuff that we used to do at Vigor. I believe they still do. Uh, we were like, let's test it on you because I'm an intern. I'm like skinny fat. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I'm 19 years old, and I spent like three or four months eating as much as I could and lifting, and I gained like 12 pounds. And I still had a six-pack. Like I was fucking – way bigger. But after that first couple of years, I kind of milked out all my progress because I spent a couple of years trying to build muscle. You build a lot of muscle. I gained, ended up gaining probably 15 to 20 pounds over that course of time. I went from like 150 all the way up to 175 or it was like 155 to 175. And by that time, I'm kind of like, okay, like how much muscle can I really gain? Yeah. You know, you're not, I'm not going to gain 50 pounds of muscle and just be monstrous. So for me, I have to go, okay, like, let me look at the science. Let me look at the education. What's possible for my body as a natural male lifter right now who is busy, who has stress, who has kind of milked his genetic potential? Uh, what can I possibly achieve? And, and the rate of gain is going to be about 0.5% of your total body weight per month. Mm -hmm. So if I break that down into per month, per week, it's 0.8 pounds per month, 0.2 pounds per week. Not much at all. But for me, it's like, okay, that's the goal. If I stick to this goal for three months, I will have gained about 2.4 pounds. 2.4 pounds of muscle is quite a bit. If you look at um, a 16-ounce steak, it's pretty big, right? Think of two and a half of those slapped on your body. It's actually a lot of muscle. Mm -hmm. But people don't think of it like that. You think 2.4 pounds because 2.4 pounds of fat is about twice as much, if not three times as much. So muscle is a lot smaller, more dense, um, and fat is, is way more. So... Um, and that's why, like, if you lose fat, build muscle, you will look the same basically from a size perspective, yeah. uh, or I'm sorry, if you from lose two pounds of, of fat and gain two pounds of muscle, the scale won't change, but you'll look dramatically different. You'll look a lot smaller, leaner, tighter. Um, anyway, anyway, for me, I'm like, okay, from a periodization standpoint, I'm staying in here for three or four months. I'm going to try to gain two to three pounds. Then I'm going to, uh, cut for three months and then I'm going to maintain for a month so I can try to keep that. Uh, about a month or two, and that's, that'll be through the summer because I want to stay lean for summer. And then I get back to gaining in September, and I'll do that for like six months. And then I'll try to put, you know, like six pounds on in that, that period of time. Um, and I have this process in my head, but for me to try to gain that slow, and the same applies for a maintenance phase like she asked, I have to focus on external factors that are going to allow me to stay motivated. So what am I lifting in the gym? So I keep record of my seated cable row, my dumbbell bench press, my barbell bench press, barbell overhead press, deadlift, uh, front squat, and then a dumbbell deficit reverse lunge. Like I kind of pick these random ones I feel really good with. Yeah. If I can progress on my three rep and eight rep maxes in those categories, I know I'm building muscle. Your, your body's ability, your capacity, I should say, to withstand tension from an external load, so a dumbbell or a barbell, whatever, is predicated on its ability to build tissue as well. If I don't have the tissue to support it, I won't be able to do it. So if I gain 0.2 pounds and I'm like, fuck, the scale is going so slow, but I PR'd all my lifts, I'm building muscle for sure. And that 2.2 pounds might be small, but that's a quarter of a steak <laughs> I just threw on my body, yeah. right? So um, 
I kind of focus on performance. I focus on biofeedback. So how is my sleep? How is my sex drive? How is my stress? How is my mood? How is my productivity at work? Because those things reflect my energy intake. So me being at maintenance, me being in a surplus, me being in a physiological healthy place in order to support muscle growth or maintenance means that all those things should improve. If they're not improving, something needs to change. But because they're improving, I can focus there instead of the scale. Um, measurements as well. I actually took measurements this morning. Um, my quads, my stomach. I, I make sure my stomach isn't growing while I gain weight. So my, my quads, my stomach, uh, my chest and lats, my delts and my arms, I measure those. Are they growing? Um, for example, my biceps flexed, didn't grow at all. Unflexed, they did grow. So something's happening. Uh, my chest grew a quarter of an inch. Uh, my glutes grew like a half an inch. I've been doing a lot of glute work since my knee inch surgery, so that makes sense. Uh, my bad knee grew or leg grew an inch. My right leg didn't grow at all, but it's, it's recovering. It's catching up. So I can see those measurements and I go, my stomach didn't grow at all. It's this exact same size. So I'll, even though in the mirror, sometimes the scale fucks with me because I'm gaining weight and I might say like, fuck, I'm getting like bloated. Or I'm getting, I'm gaining weight. I actually didn't gain any body fat on my stomach. So now I can be like, actually, I can calm down. I'm not gaining fat. But I did build muscle, clearly, in a couple places based on these measurements. So if you're at maintenance, for you, you might not be trying to grow at all. I would measure all those limbs because if they are growing, it means you're building muscle while maintaining. If they didn't grow, it means you're not gaining fat, so don't worry about it. Um, is your performance going up? It should be because you're healthier now. And then last but not least is your biofeedback across the board, stress, sex drive, all those different things. Um, are those things improving? If they are, your maintenance is working. And that's kind of like your motivation right there. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about this is just the education side behind the long term. Like I literally sat down with a textbook because I have textbooks on training and periodization and nutrition. Like I actually pulled out this other day, pulled out my textbooks, pulled out my journal, wrote my average weight from my last two weeks of like where my average is at. It's 168 on average. Took that, calculated for an advanced lifter who's lifting this much, doing blah, 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 in a small surplus, how much muscle should I gain per month? What does that look like for my body weight? What does that look like per week? What does that look like uh, if I stretched out for three months? Because I looked at my calendar. I'm like, okay, if I do this for three months, that stops me three months before summer. That gives me three months to diet into summer. And then I can maintain two months in summer. So I have more flexibility, not trying to get leaner, but maintaining. And then I can get back to September. So I actually like looked at this grand scheme of things. And then I go, okay, what does my training look like? Right now, my training is a, a modified conjugate method. So I have four days of lifting and then some aerobic work. Um, but I know as I build my calories and as I build muscle, I need to increase volume. So how am I going to change this over time? Right now, this program's smashing me. Um, and this, I'm going to release this uh, in, in spring. So you guys will hear about this. You guys can join and true coach and everything. But um, right now, four days a week, two max effort days, two dynamic slash hypertrophy days, they're smashing me. I'm not going to add volume because I'm, I'm sore. But in about two or three months, I'll probably have kind of built up my tolerance to that volume and I'll be able to handle more. At that point, what am I going to do? I'm going to add a fifth day. What does that look like? So now I'm going to have two hypertrophy days, two dynamic days, and one full body strength day where I do bench squat, deadlift, heavy. That's my only goal for the day. It's on yeah. Saturday. Um, so I mapped that out. So like for you who asked this question, I can't remember your name off the top of my head. Or CF. CF. C underscore F underscore times five F. Um, you should learn about what your body can do, what it is doing, what your biofeedback's like, measurements, performance metrics, all these different things that you can track besides weight. And then look at your calendar year and determine 
what does that look like for you? For sure, yeah. You know what I mean? Because now I can break it up in, in the year, and this is why I love when people sign up for a long period of time. Um, I just had somebody sign up for a year with me, and it's like, thank you. Let's look at the calendar. Let's map this out. Let's periodize the whole process, and we can go three months of this, one month transition, three months of this, focus on this, and we have – uh, like a power lifting meet, Olympic lifting meet. I mean, um, uh, different, like a photo shoot goal. We have different things spread out throughout the year and we can kind of plan for these things. Um, but when you do that, all of a sudden your motivation increases yeah. because I might like be like, fuck, I'm not shredded right now, but I know I will be, and yeah. I'll be bigger this time because I'm spending this time doing this. So, um, that was a long winded answer. Um, probably cause I literally just sat down and did this like two days ago, but, uh, I think it's important for people to, to educate themselves and then to really look at the long term, the macro calendar, and then kind of phase it out throughout the year for sure dope i think that was a good answer yep all right next question this is from renee arnston squats i thought i heard you mention once in a podcast that a box squat could be done in replacement of the squat i have a hard time with my wrist when holding the bar in front so i'm assuming that says in front holding the bar in front so would the bar over the back or or the neck, shoulders, with no box, be the same as box squat? Can you expand on this? Yeah, so this is kind of a confusing question. I, I think I think you're slightly confused, um, or I might have worded whatever I said wrong. I don't know what I said. Um, but a few things. Number one, if if a, a front squat hurts you because you're, or doesn't feel comfortable because your wrist, two things. Either A, if you want to be able to front squat, work on your wrist mobility. I couldn't front squat or jerk or clean for a long time because I couldn't hold it in that rack position. But I embarked on this like CrossFit journey for three or four months and I was like, I have to do that. So I just worked on wrist mobility, like stretching and pushing into my palms, like holding the bar there, just kind of going, getting through the pain until that tightness in my form released, um, which actually helped me in all my other lifting as well. So I do encourage people to do that. Like when you're like, oh, I just don't want to do it. It's like, well, work on your wrist flexibility and your forearm flexibility. I'm sorry, your wrist mobility and forearm flexibility because it'll carry over into the rest of your life and, and training. Um, now you can also cross your arms and just hold it on your shoulders and do a front squat too, if you're after a front squat. Now, there's differences in the squats. High bar back squat and, and barbell front squat are very similar. They're very quad dominant. Um, usually they allow more range of motion because it's not hip dominant. Um, it's more knee flexion, so your knees actually glide further over your feet. It requires more ankle mobility. Um, a low bar back squat is more similar to a box squat because you're sitting back into it. However, you can kind of maximize depth and you don't have anything to pause and brace on. Yeah. Um, but I think it's all application specific. So when I hear this question, I'm like, well, it depends. Like, when are you doing this squat? Because if, for example, it's a, a max effort day and you do a deadlift, you do maybe some hip thrust, you're doing stuff, and then you have a squat. I wouldn't really want you doing a back squat because you already had a heavy load with a lot of spinal compression from the deadlift. You already had a hip dominant movement with the barbell hip thrust. And now you're going into a squat. If you make it a box squat or a low bar back squat, you're making it another hip dominant and potentially putting more tension on your lower back. I would rather switch the loading and put it on the front, do higher volume and lighter weight. Yeah. So it's more of a metabolite or it's more of a metabolic and or hypertrophy movement. Um, and I think this is actually a problem with a lot of people programming. They don't think about um, – loading and positioning. So for me, when I'm doing a program, how many times am I loading it in the front? How many times am I loading it in the back? How many times am I loading it laterally? How many times is that load offset? How many times is it overhead? There's so many different ways to load your body. And if you're not looking at those things, your posture and your joints are going to take a beating. So can you do a box squat instead of a front squat? 
it depends when in, when in your week and when in that workout is that squat coming. The other side of this is it, it hits completely different things. When I front squat, it's very quad dominant. There's a lot of knee flexion and there's a lot of ankle uh, flexion needed, um, dorsiflexion needed. But in a box squat, it's very hip dominant. There's not that much knee or ankle flexion. And it's, it's, uh, I can go heavier because I'm not going as deep of range of motion sitting on a box. Yeah. Um, and the application is different. For a front squat with maximum range of motion, I'm usually going high reps because you can only hold so much in the front. Yeah. It's, not, nice. a, it's not a, like a big, big compound strength movement like a back squat or a box squat is. So I might use that for 8 to 10 reps and do hypertrophy. Like I want you to focus on tension in your quads and go slow. Let's build muscle with this. On a box squat, I'm like load that shit up and go heavy or go like we did in the video. We just shot like 65% of your max and go for speed. You're being explosive. For three reps, I could do way more than I was lifting. I think I had 275 on there. I could do way more than that for three. But I was going for speed in in every minute on the minute. Um, So it's all about application. And then the last thing I would say too um, is – I guess I don't even have anything else to say. I, I mean, I, I don't think like, because she was asking if we could substitute it, right? Yeah. And I, I think that it depends on when you're placing it. Now, the only time I would ever sub the box squat for something is if it is at the very beginning of your workout and it is a compound lift. So during, um, she's one of our clients and I want to say she's following perform and build or perform and burn. Um, and you can email me and correct me if I'm wrong, Renee, but I think you're following one of those. Um, and if you are, then I would say the box squat could be subbed for a back squat on your dynamic day because your max effort day is a deadlift. So your dynamic day is every other week and it's for speed. You could do a back squat with that. Um, I wouldn't do a front squat because actually, you know what? I wouldn't even change. I, I know I'm rambling now. I wouldn't change that because the way that program works is every other week's speed, every other week's hypertrophy. The hypertrophy weeks are front squats. Mm -hmm. You could change the front squat to a high bar back squat because it is hypertrophy focused. The movement pattern is very similar if you do it high on your back and you can get a deep range of motion. It's still very quad dominant, whereas a box squat is very glute dominant and it's more for loading heavy or going fast. Um, So it's just different context. Uh, And then as far as your wrist goes, you probably wouldn't have any issues that. I mean, it's just resting on your back. Um, The issue people have with their upper body during a back squat is actually uh, their shoulders and their rotator cuff. Being able to actually rotate far enough to grab the bar um, can cause issues. And a lot of times people will end up bringing their elbows forward. Well, when I bring my elbows forward on the bar, because it's more comfortable on my wrist and my shoulder, now I'm also protracting that shoulder, causing more pinching on the shoulder um, joint itself. And then that's going to lead to kind of exacerbating and rounding. And it's going to lead to rounding is going to lead to poor thoracic extension. And then the shoulder protruding forward is probably going to lead to, uh, just more shoulder pain. Really. Sounds like a domino effect. sounds like a domino effect. It's exactly what it is. Um, what I would do is I always tell people bring your hands. So your knuckles are facing the ceiling when you're crushing the bar. And then imagine you're doing a lap pull down. So I literally want you to pull the bar into your traps. So when I do that, two things happen. One, I activate my lats. When you activate your lats, people forget that your lats are part of your core. Your core is all about stability and trunk stiffness. Your lats help you do that. And when you, um, abduct them and you abduct your torso. So you actually bring your elbows towards your waistline. You actually flex your uh, obliques as well. And you actually create more stiffness. That's why I like that tall kneeling pull in. 
So when I do this, I'm, I'm crushing the bar, I'm creating more tension. When I crush the bar and pull it over my back, my shoulders actually shrug, so my traps are more elevated. It gives you like a padding for the bar, and then I'm abducting and, and rowing at the same time, pulling down at the same time on the bar, and I'm firing my lats, I'm firing, firing my obliques, and I create more trunk stiffness. So when you do all those things, you're like a tank in that squat. You just build way more stability, and this is why people say like, oh, you don't need to do ab work, you can just squat. I don't know if that's completely true. However, the people who squat with a lot of tension, like I just described, are more likely to get away with that because they know how to create that tension in the squat. You can't do that in a front squat, right? Because you're right here. However, it's pulling down. You're going to rib cage down. It's, it's still very core dominant. But my point being is, is you should be fine. Just make sure you're creating tension. You're almost like bending that bar around your back. That's very descriptive. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Next question is going to be uh, Adrian Frank Ling. Adrian? I wonder, I was going to say, I wonder what her, because I've always called her Adriana. Adriana, A-D-R-I. Because Adrian is usually A-D-R-I-N-A-N. Yeah. Adriana? Adriana? Franklin. Yeah. I apologize. She's been a long-time <laughs> listener, too, so shout out to her. Sick. Well, I'm a, been a short-term host. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how would you recommend adding four days a week of running to train for a 10K? Combined with functional muscle 2.0 or five days a week lifting running directly after running directly after lifting or waiting a few hours with a meal in between running on a rest day. If it's light, I can, I cannot do fasted cardio in the morning due to childcare. My husband works out in the morning before work. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, if you need help repeating any of those, let me know. Functional muscle 2.0 is five days a week. So I think that's why she put four or five days a week. I got that. I'm just letting the listeners know. Um, if you're curious about functional muscle 2.0, <clears throat> shameless plug, um, really good program. Anyway, um, how I would, so there's a few things here. First and foremost, I wouldn't do functional muscle 2.0 <laughs> so much for that shameless plug. Yeah. If you're uh, training for a, a, she say a 10 K. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is because training for a 10 K is so you're running three to four days a week that's adding volume it's adding stress adding five days a week lifting probably not the best bet um maybe if you've been doing it for a while so this kind of goes back to exactly how i was periodizing my program right now i'm doing three or four days of aerobic work and i'm going to continue that but i'm doing four days of lifting eventually my body will adapt and be able to handle more volume at that point i'll go to five days a week plus the three to four days of aerobic work Gotcha. But see how I phased that like i started with four days to make sure that i can keep recovery high um so what i would do is I would probably regress down to functional muscle one, honestly, because that one's four days a week um, or density, which is another four day a week program or something else we have in the elite. But nonetheless, like four days a week of lifting, probably like an upper lower split. Um, you could do full body as well. I tend to like upper lower splits when we're doubling down on aerobic work too um, because sometimes when you do full body it, and you're running, it's just so much legs all the time. I would rather pair your runs in the morning um, or directly after, like you mentioned, um, you said you can't do it in the morning. So I would either do it directly after or I would wait a few hours after and do it on a leg day. Mm. And the reason for that is usually DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, doesn't kick in until the next day, typically. So your best bet is to go like, I'm going to train legs today. And then right afterwards, I'm going to go on this run. So usually what that would look like is legs, drink a whey protein shake with highly branched cyclic dextrin. So I get fast acting protein, fast acting carbs. Then I go right on a run. Or if you need more time, you would go lift, shake, 
run three hours later or lift meal run three hours later. Um, and I would do it on the leg days. So if you're, does she say she's running? Th- she say, does she say she's running three days or four days? Uh, running directly. How would you recommend adding four days a week of okay. running? So four days a week. So I would probably go running on your leg days and running on one upper day and one rest day. Or you could even do running on all your training days and actually take three full days of rest off. Um, but nonetheless, I would definitely pair up running on your leg days. This is the exact same thing I do. I do my aerobic work because it's usually leg dominant. Um, I mean, even the, the rower, you're doing a squat on the rower over and over again. So I always do those on leg days because I'm not going to be sore a few hours later when I lift. Um, but I will be sore uh, the next day. So let's say I did a heavy leg day Monday. Tuesday morning, I wake up to do my run. I'm sore as fuck. Yeah. Not going to happen, right? But if I do it Monday morning before the lift or I do it Monday right after the lift, I'm not going to be more sore. I'm going to be the same sore Tuesday as I was, but now I don't have to wake up Tuesday and do more running. So you're probably going to want to pair it on those days. Um, and I would probably lower volume at first, ease into it. I think jumping into it right away four days a week is kind of aggressive. Um, I did two days for a few weeks to, to kind of build up my tolerance. And I'm using a lot of modalities that are very uh, unecentric. So even people who train for uh, marathons or 10Ks and 5Ks that I've worked with in the past that do this, I will do a lot of assault bike. I will do a lot of sled. I will do a lot of rower because there's no compounding of the joints. There's mm-hmm. no eccentric. So the eccentric lift is that negative of the movement. But when you're on an assault bike, it's concentric, concentric, concentric. When you're pulling a sled, concentric, concentric. Rower, same thing. Um, running, not as much. But the point of that is, is that eccentric is going to create more muscle damage. That eccentric is what's compounding that joint. That's what's creating a lot of fatigue and soreness. So most people wanting to get ready for this – they need to do one or two days of running because that's the skill of your legs moving and your body moving with it. So what I would do is I would actually do a run day on your leg days. So you have leg day plus running. And then on two of your other days, your rest days, I would be doing sled, assault bike, or rower where there's no eccentric lift. It's way easier on your joints and you're just mimicking the oxidative intensity, the oxidative, the aerobic capacity. So your breathing patterns, your ability to perform X amount of meters in a certain time or calories burned in a certain amount of time. Um, your wattage, whatever machine you're using, you're using that as a tool to gauge your intensity inside of the aerobic realm. That's going to mimic what your body needs to do from an energy systems perspective to run, except you're not beating up your legs in the process. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So like now you can go on one or two runs for the skill of running to make sure you can actually run because there is, there's a pattern to it. There's like ankle flexion. You have to be able to run. I know the first time I ran, my ankles hurt, my hamstrings hurt. And I was like, damn, I just haven't ran. I need to like practice my pattern, which is actually why we have the assault runner. That curvature yeah. gives you a natural gait. If I go running on the streets, I'm sore as hell. Yeah. If I run on that, I'm not that sore because it gives me a good pattern and sure. gait of my run. Um, so that's what I would do. I would, I would put two runs on your leg days, and I would do the same day so you're not dying the next day from soreness. And then I would have two uh, days of non-eccentric conditioning, and I would do those on your rest days, or I would do those on the upper body days. Dope. All right. I'll just look at the next question here. It says we got, we got time for one more. Yep. All right. This is from Logan Flores. What progression would you – what progression would you like someone to use if they cannot yet perform a pistol squat? Mm. You're familiar with this. Yep. I had you doing it on Monday. Yesterday. Lateral. On Monday, yeah. 
Lateral box step, up. step ups. Yeah. That was straight up pistol squat. Yep. It, I mean, it essentially is. Makes you. Yeah. It basically makes you, except it guides you to the floor. Yeah. So a normal pistol squat is ass to heel, leg in the air, which that alone is hard to keep maintain yeah. while you're squatting. And you have to be able to squat all the way to the ground on one leg. I thought about that when I was doing um, So there's two things here. Uh, regression number one would be a pistol squat with a TRX. Mm -hmm. So you can lower yourself holding the TRX and you can actually just row yourself up. There you go. Super easy. Um, but it gives you some like practice in that patterning. Um, the next level up would be a step up. Like I said, I like a lateral step up because the box is to the side of you and therefore your leg can kind of hang off of it. Um, and all you're trying to do here is actually the negative. So like with you, um, because you've had your knee injury, we're trying to work on stability of your knee and I want good range of motion in a unilateral pattern. So you're literally just body weight going on a pretty high box as slow as you can on that negative, basically doing a single leg squat, but I'm not worried about you sticking your leg out like a pistol. Um, and you just go until you kind of drop. So you would control it pretty damn far. And then we kind of know your sticking point. It was like right after you passed that 90 mm -hmm. degree flexion in your knee and you kind of lowered to the ground. Right. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of drop down yeah. at that point. You push off that, that bottom leg to guide you up on the concentric and then you control down as far as you can. The goal for you over the next few weeks is to be able to lower as slow as you can all the way until your foot just touches the floor. Right now you're getting to that 90 degree point and then you kind of drop down. Right. As we build stability in your knee and strengthen your quad, you're going to be able to lower all the way to the ground. Once you can do that, we're going to add load. We're going to change the variation, do something like that. Um, so that's my second one. And then the third one would be the airborne lunge, which we did a video for on Instagram. And this is a way where you can basically do a pistol squat, but you don't have to stick. The positioning of your body is a little bit different. You can lean forward, which helps change your center of gravity. And you don't have to stick that other leg out front. Mm -hmm. Like a normal pistol squat is like, like I'm basically for those watching, I'm in this position, squat here and then leg here. Yeah. So like, this just is flexing right here, just trying to hold that position. Where airborne lunge, it goes back like a reverse lunge until your knee taps the pad. Yeah. Um, so that would be my third regression. And then f after that, you're able to basically do a pistol squat yeah. to a low box and then a pistol squat to nothing. I worked up to a point where I could do a pistol squat, ass to heel with a 62-pound kettlebell, 72-pound kettlebell. I have a picture. Dude, I have a picture of me and Luca when I was fucking like – it's probably 19 or 20, and he had a 108-pound kettlebell, and I had a 72-pound kettlebell, ass to grass pistol squat. Dope. Yeah, before the second Bad knee injury. Ass. It was sick. It, it's, a good, it's a dope picture. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Not with my bad knee, at least. Yeah. Uh, working out, though. We got one more. Let's do one more. Awesome. All right, so this one's coming from Sean Robertson. Can you suggest a daily quick shoulder warm-up complex for a bodybuilding upper body day or a CrossFit day? Something that can be done every day for someone that has shoulder pain, primarily rotator cuff. I think we should do a video on this because I talk, I, I've linked in True Coach that shoulder band circles. Yep. I've linked a shoulder primer um, from other people that I really like. Yeah. But I need to make my own because I kind of tweak it. Um, so you want to answer this or do you want to? Yeah, no, I will answer okay. it. But we'll definitely do a video of this too and put it on IG. And then for those of you who are in the elite or in uh, the elite training through our True Coach app, you'll get access to that soon. Like we'll, we'll launch a video of it. But um, there's a few things here. Number one, if you have bad uh, rotator cuffs, you probably also have poor internal external rotation. So a few things. These are very hard to describe with a podcast. But for those of you watching on the YouTube, you can see it here. But I would one thing I like is grabbing a tennis ball 
and holding your arms straight out like a T. Um, and then you'll do it as like a Y and then way overhead. And you're literally practicing internal external rotation. So you can do this with, if you're listening, you can do this with your palms up in the air and try to have your palms flat to the ceiling. You can already feel that internal rotation of your scapula, your lats kind of fire and depress down. In the shape of a T. In the shape of the T, yep. yep. And then from here, I'm going to rotate my palms downward. So I'm externally rotating. And if I can, I'm going to go even farther and try to have my palms facing behind me. But now I'm externally rotating as far as possible. And your shoulder kind of protracts forward, and that's okay. All I'm trying to do is create internal, external rotation of my scapula over and over again. Um, and then what you can do is a bent position. Same thing. Elbows, Ex- elbows bent. Elbows bent. Like the ending position is like a field goal post. 90-degree flexion in your elbow. External, internal rotation. And you can do that one laying down as well. It's opposite did to down yep exactly and you're just going back and forth back and forth so now i'm just trying to move it then what you'll do is circles so if you want to add tension i like using a band but you can even back do in this the shape of a t yep and you can just do this with with your arms out and you're just literally you got to remember the the shoulder's a ball and socket joint so can you move it in every direction ball and socket same with your your ankle you should be able to do full circles figure eight spell the alphabet same exact thing um so i would go through literally and this is really easy because you can just go by feel Am I moving through a full range of motion with just body weight, nothing in my hands? Um, after that, and in like an activation phase setting prior to actually getting into lifting, um, I like doing uh, band circles are one of my favorites. This is where you would basically attach bands to a pole, one in each hand. And I start low, so my lats are more active. So I pull my shoulders down, so my scapula is depressed, my hands are down on my side. And I'm doing circles mm-hmm. clockwise, then counterclockwise. I'm literally, all I'm doing is packing my scapula down. So I'm practicing scapular depression, firing my lats, and I'm doing circles. When I do circles with that band resistance, I'm just creating tension. So now I'm, what you're doing is reinforcing your body's ability to create tension and handle load in that depressed position, which is something we want. Then I'm going to come back up to a T, do the same thing. Now I'm in a retracted position, not depressed, retracted like you should be in a row or a band pull part. Shoulders pulled back, pinched together a little bit, circles. Then I'm going to do an overhead. So this is where I'm reaching way up. You're still in a retracted, but you're also in a thoracic extension. Same thing, circles. This one burns the shit out of your delts. You're just moving around. Now all I'm trying to do is I'm firing my rear delts. I'm firing my rhomboid. Firing my thoracic anterior, I'm firing my traps, I'm firing everything up my upper back, really, um, and around the scapula, lats. Um, and I'm just getting them functioning properly in these different scapular positions. Um, sure. That's probably one of my favorites. You can also do face pulls. That's a really good one. Face pulls, band pull parts, and band over and backs. So face pulls is like tension-based external rotation. Band pull parts is like a high pull, essentially. And then over and backs is just taking the band over and back. And you're basically going into uh, protraction, retraction, elevation, depression, and then reversing that process. Um, but if you go through all those, your traps will be on fire. You'll build bigger traps and rear delts. And you're probably going to uh, improve your, your mobility and your, your body's ability to function through different ranges of motion of your scapula, and essentially. Shoulder. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, 
head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.